really having just considered that song, let us turn to Deuteronomy chapter 32, where we will take up our second in a series of sermons through Deuteronomy 32, and we began to look at the fact last week that God is the rock, and we will return to that a little bit today before we move on to a few other things. So if you have your Bible, join me in Deuteronomy 32, and I'm going to read from the beginning of the chapter down through verse 9. Listen as I read God's word. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain and my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like the showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemishes. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotment. Let us pray. Lord, we are, as always, thankful to you for the blessed privilege to be able to gather together in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to have your word uh, available to us, to open it. Lord, we thank you that we live in a land where we have such freedoms to gather and to worship. Lord, we thank you that we live in an age where we have your word in our hands in various translations and that we can glean and gain from the richness and faithfulness of your truth that you've delivered to us. Lord, I ask you that this morning, as we take some time to dig in and consider a few thoughts from this section of scripture, God, it is my desire that you would be pleased to use me and grant me to speak your word clearly and accurately and faithfully. Also, as always, Lord, I pray that those that you have brought here who are your people, you would give them ears to hear, give them a sensitivity and an appreciation for who you are and what you've revealed about yourself. Lord, may we be moved to a, a deeper sense of amazement, uh, wonder, adoration, and worship. And Lord, may we begin to grasp even more fully and clearly some of those things that you reveal of your power and of your person and even regarding the people that are the works of your hands. Lord, please do speak to and teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so there are a few thoughts that we're going to consider and, and really the overview today is going to unload three main thoughts. One, we are going to look at God, who is our rock, the solid rock, the singular, unique rock. 
unlike any other. And then interestingly, this passage, and, and scripture often does this, will then contrast this rock, God and all of his excellencies and perfections with people. The creature compared to creation, and we see the solid rock, and we're going to compare that with what the scriptures reveal to be senseless rebels. And then we will uh, just tie things together, looking at God's sovereign rule throughout uh, his creation. So the first thing, again, I want to take our attention to is to look at the reality where the scripture speaks of God as our solid or unique rock. It says here, again, looking at verse 3, before we unpack beginning in verse 4, for I will name the name of the Lord. We looked at that last week and the richness of that name of the Lord, that powerful self-existent one through whom all else exists. And then he encourages, not only will he name the name of God and, and, and just continue to name that, remembering who he is and everything else's dependence and existence all related to him but then he calls on those who who are hearing about this the lord to ascribe greatness to our god and then he begins in that in verse four and this is where we're really taking up today to note for them things that ought to move and motivate them to ascribe greatness to god now, this is interesting and challenging, and we've considered it some in the past. If I ask you, have you, at any point, referred to something as great? I think probably all of us have done so. And when we, so we, we say, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. The tragedy is we ascribe greatness to things that are pretty mundane. And pretty ordinary. You know, that was a great song. That was a great game. That was a great dessert. A great meal. Uh, you know, your hair looks great. You know, and, we, and it's like... Now, to take that same great and ascribe greatness to God, it is not asking you to compare God with the ordinary and the mundane. And, and the simple and, and the practical. We... Are, it really is wanting us to see it on a totally different plane and, the, and to ascribe greatness, the ultimate greatness, the maximum superior superlative separate greatness to God. He, it, it starts out in verse 4 with just this simple phrase, the rock. And it, 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 when, you, when you read it, it sounds disjointed, even in the English language. Ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, which generally we refer to God, uh, the God of our salvation, God our banner, God our righteousness. We refer to God in many ways, but we don't commonly refer to him as the rock. We will off reference him as a rock, a rock and a refuge, a fortress in a time of need, and we'll recognize that idea, but the scripture here states it in a unique singularity, the rock. Do other rocks exist? Well, in terms of stones, yes. 
This is the, the term here also is not a term for a little rock, a little pebble, or even, even a boulder. It is more the phrase of like a rocky summit. That which is big, stable, immovable. Uh, I love the terminology that's here in this because... Um, and uh, not only do I, it, see, it, remember, this song is not written by Moses. It is written by God. God had said to Moses, speak this song, teach this song to the people. And actually, if you look at the very end of this song, Moses taught it to the people and enlisted Joshua's assistance to also help the people get it. Maybe at some point they began to sing it in a duet. But I know this. I do not know the melody. I don't know the tune that it was sung by. Scriptures have not considered that the central part of this particular song. And I dare say I would love for the world to recognize and for the church in particular to note. As much as we will appreciate beautiful melodies and, and, and songs that are, that, that are rich and move us musically, what is most non-negotiable is what we sing the words that we say the content that we develop what's wonderful and and the scriptures are filled with songs that are inspired by the holy spirit the whole book of psalms is songs god himself writes this song and the words are really meaningful. And it just kind of starts out the song after almost imploring them, this is how it's going to get started. I'm going to say the name of the Lord. You ascribe greatness. The rock. It, when, when they look at that, I just want us to understand this idea. Not only does it resonate with me, but it sticks in the mind of the author here. Because in chapter 32, if you were to, and I recommend doing so, look down to verse 13. You will see this in the second part of verse 13. And this is, this is in, in a section where it's speaking, and we'll look at it next week, or, or the next time I preach. Uh, a section here, it's referencing God's provision and care uh, for the children of Israel. But it says in the second half of that verse, He suckled them with honey out of the rock and oil out of flinty rock. Now, those are interesting phrases, pretty much things we've probably never experienced. How many of you have suckled honey out of a rock or oil out of a flinty rock? So again, it's, it's interesting terminology, but what we began to do last week, and I want to pile up again now, is the concept of the rock when it lays forth in Scripture our God, the rock, we also do recognize as we come to the New Testament, the Messiah is oft referred to as a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. And when we look at this, it, we've got to understand uh, a rock could hold and, and carry out multiple things. One of the primary things would be uh, that thing which is stable and unmoving. Even the idea, can you move mountains? No, it, it is absolutely sure. The storm's going to come, and no matter how bad the storm is, trees may fall, you know, uh, water may run, 
houses and man-made structures that are built may be demolished. But when all is said and done, that powerful rocky outcropping, that's still there. Uh, I remember years ago when uh, Jemima and I first and then later with the kids visited, there's a place in Colorado Springs called Garden of the Gods. It is not a garden of the gods, but what it, the reason why it's phrased that way is because it looks like as you go there, someone has planted rocks that just go up in these tremendous outcroppings. And at certain points, you go up these rocks and there's big rocks balanced on top of other rocks. And you think, how long is that going to be there? When's that going to come down? And it's been there for as long as people have been visiting it and attempting to climb up on it. But they call it Garden of the Gods because it's so big and it's so mighty that man couldn't make it. They really can't consider adequate explanations for how such unique rocky structures have developed. You know, they, they, they try to come up with all kinds of musings, but it's a bunch of nonsense. God oft is pleased to do thing in, things in the context of nature that defy natural explanation so that men might know there is a God, not a garden of the gods. All that exists is from our God. And that, that is immovable so that I know this. If at any point God is pleased that someday I have grandchildren, or maybe if at some point someday grandchildren, I have a high degree of confidence that if uh, our Savior has not returned, and I plead He does, but if He hasn't, that my children's children, children can probably go to Colorado Springs, and they're going to visit Garden of the Gods, and it's going to look just like it did when I saw it. Because there's a sense of stability. There's a sense of surety. And this idea is, here's the storm. If you can run into the rock, it's like a fortress. It's a place of stability, protection. God is unmoving. He's unmoving in his truth. You don't have to wonder, well, what's he going to want next year? What's his character going to be? God doesn't change. His truth doesn't change. His gospel doesn't change. He's absolutely sure. But not only does the term rock speak of stability and surety and immovability, but it says suckled honey out of the rock. Flinty oil out of the rock. I mean, oil is one of those, one of those basic Things that was used among the children of Israel whenever you're gonna cook something you would often cook bread with some sort of oil mixed in it you would cook you, you know you throw into your pan before you're cooking up your delicious meats and stir-fry and whatever you throw a little oil in there it was just that common thing that was often a part of most every dish and most every meal and then the honey was the dessert that was the delicacy delight of sweetness you know that was to them if you were you know for each of us we could go around and say what's your favorite dessert what's the thing that the moment you think of that dessert you begin to salivate you know we we generally all have something like that and i do know some of you have a long list with no specific outstanding favorite 
and most any dessert already gets you going. I understand that. Then you can identify with this. For the children of Israel, honey was that. You spoke of honey, that, that was the sweetness. You know, and, and, and the idea of suckled is that it's provided, you're not even having to work for it. So you've got, here God is not only the stability and rock and protection, but he's the ordinary provision and nourishment. He's the extraordinary delight and joy. And so it's like, wow, at every scope along the way, here is God. And, and I guess part of it, uh, you know, even along these lines, my mind goes back in the, in the mercies of God, we as a family happened to be in the nation of Mauritius when it was hit by a cyclone, which is a direct hit from a hurricane. And it was awesome. I mean, the, the power of God in the way that it was taking massive trees and bending them to the earth, taking things that were not nicely secured, such as dishes, for um, television dishes and sending them like frisbees thrown by Goliath, at least in my imagination, just zipping and, and just sitting there and, and the roar of the storm and all of those things uh, going on and you're told not to go outdoors and you're told all insurance is canceled for the next 48 hours on, on homes and cars, whoa. But somehow we were in, a, we were in this, uh, this apartment building that I knew had already survived two or three direct hits. And so I was feeling pretty confident. And so we just kind of sat down by the sliding glass door and watched the show. It's just like, wow, can you believe this power? Can you believe this is amazing? And... We didn't really think about it, but subsequently people who have not been in such storms, or were you scared? And I, somehow I forgot to be scared because I thought this building's gotten through it before three or four times. I didn't even think about being scared. All I thought about is how powerful and amazing is this storm. And this is but, you know, a, a, a gentle brush of the little finger of God, so to speak. And it and and the whole a whole nation comes to a standstill, and the subsequent cleanup and preparedness, all of that happens. But uh, even while all of that is there, we just sat there like. Now, realistically, it was pushing the windows in and pushing water underneath, and so the house was filling with water. But we were still safe from any potential collapse, and it was it, and and. There is that reality. Whatever is going on in the world. Well, I mean, sometimes we think of that. Remember, we've talked about the, how the early believers, it mentions in the book of Hebrews, joyfully accepted the plundering of their possessions. They identified with fellow believers who were in prison for the sake of their faith. When Paul and, and Silas are in prison, what are they doing? Woe is me, boo-hoo-hoo. You know, what's going to happen? I'm so scaredy. No, what were they doing? Praising God and singing. There's not, there, there's not a fear. Now, but don't they know that they could be killed? Well, Jesus also knew he could be killed. And what did he say? You would have no power if it were not given you from above. 
Pilate, do you really think you're in control? God's in control. Herod, is he in control? No, God's in control. In all circumstances, God is in control. And if God has allotted to preserve my life, no man can take it. No enemy can take it. The devil, though he so desired to destroy and bring to death Job, could he destroy him until God permitted? He couldn't touch him. And even when God permitted a measure of destruction, could he kill him? He could not. Why? Because God is the one who's in control of all of these things. And so when we understand this, what stability what joy. Even there's a sense in which a scripture te tells us if you're reading through Ecclesiastes, God is the one who gives to every one of us whatever it is that we have. It's all been allotted to us. But to some, it's not given to have it and to enjoy it. But God has granted us however much or however little we can take and receive everything he's given us with thankfulness, with joy, and with returns to him. And so... There's a sense in which we get to take every thought captive to Christ. Whether we eat or drink, in whatever we do, we do to the glory of God. It, it, because we understand this. There's not these parts of my life that are connected to God and these other parts of my life that are not. You know, there's my family life and my work life and my business life. And there's all these things. And then there's my spiritual life. No, 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 no. God is God where? When? In case the video is not getting it, where? Everywhere. When? At all times. And so this, this is the reality in which we live. So is he God when I'm at work? Is he God when I'm at the bank? Is he God when I'm driving in a car? At a stoplight? Getting hit by someone who didn't stop? Whatever's happening, he still is God and exercising his control as God. And so we're able to rest secure and even delight. And someone say, how can you delight in a car accident? Well, sometimes the delight is what? Well, the vehicle's damaged, but, but we're fine. We're injured, but we're still alive. Or we're no longer alive. But now we're with the Lord, which is far better. So no matter what you do, there's always something glorious and rejoice worthy for those who know God and trust in his purpose. And so, oh, what, what, an, uh, what an amazing rock. There, there were, even in the, in the days of the scriptures, people were, were naming their kids after the fact that God is the rock. It would be harder for us to do, I know. But for example, you can see in, uh, let's see, Numbers chapter 3, verse 35, someone, uh, one of the sons of Moriah, Levi, named their son Zuriel. And I, I don't expect you to do that, but you could name a pet Zuriel. All right. And, and, and it means... A rock, or the rock is God. Or sometimes people see it personally, my rock is God. Even beautifully over in uh, 
Numbers chapter 1, verse 6, they named a little guy uh, Zuri Shaddai. Now, some of you have, are familiar with El Shaddai. This is Zuri Shaddai, and that is my rock is almighty. And, and it just because the, just caught up in this sense, God is my rock. When uh, things are going wrong, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. All that I need for sustenance, all that I need for survival, for nourishment, for protection, for enjoyment, all that I ultimately require comes to me from my rock. Oh, how, how glorious that is. And so he goes on, and, and, and so back in Deuteronomy 32, look at verse 15. And we're going to, they actually scoffed at, the end of verse 15, scoffed at the rock of his salvation. So again, it's linking God's strength and security and stability with deliverance. There is no other rock of salvation. There is no other abiding joy and delights. There is no more enduring sustenance and nourishment. It's It's God. And it comes from him. Verse 18, you were unmindful of the rock that bore you. And you forgot the God that gave birth to you. Again, normally we don't visualize rocks as giving birth. We don't have trained midwives for rocks and such. But the idea, again, speaks of, of his profound stability and unwavering character. Our God the rock. Now, I, I, I could just get caught up on that all day long, but I, do, I have to move on for your sake. Uh, but spend some time searching the scriptures and discussing how frequently this term comes up. You read through the Psalms how frequently this term comes up, and it's just become something we pass by pretty quickly. It's a term that, that its breadth of significance is glorious. But here, some of the elements of, of his stability, his unwavering, and his certainty, and it's going to begin to ascribe these things in greatness to God, and they are going to be in stark contrast to man in the next verse. And it simply says a few things like this. His work is perfect. Okay. Now, again, work is a little bit uh, challenging a term. It's not here talking about labor or employment or career. It's more what he does. All that he does is perfect. See, you know, you're probably aware of people who have a perfectionist tendency, you know. And, and most people don't refer to themselves as having an imperfectionist tendency. But, uh, you know, sometimes maybe it sounds like a bad excuse. Something may need to be done around the house. And someone who needs to do it may indicate, I could attempt that, but I'm quite sure the outcome would not be as good as it should. So maybe we ought to bring in a professional. Because if I try to do it, if I try to fix that hole in the wall, if I try to repair that crack, if I try to retexture that thing, if I try to build this, if I try to do that, 
Yeah, everybody who has working eyes is going to recognize, well, so you did that yourself, right? I mean, it's going to be the first thing that comes up. So, and, and it's like, ah, because again, part, to some extent, when you put your hand to something, we can do well. And in, in our areas of skill and expertise and uh, experience, we can develop degrees of competence, degrees of excellence, to where at times, and this was what happened, someone will say, that looks great. And the person who did it will be, yeah, okay, you, you don't see this and this and this, but I mean, it, it's okay. Um, but it's, it's not perfect, but, but thank you. Um, but here's the reality. With God, it is perfect. Everything is perfect. The idea here is it is without blemish. It is without spot. It is without flaw. It is flawless. What is flawless? Not only God, who he is. Yes, that indeed. Everything he does Everything that he deigns to do is absolutely perfect. And, and, it, and it just builds from that. So, so there's no errors. There's mo no mistakes. It is, it is complete. It is whole. It is sound. It is thorough. There's no, there's no oversight. There's no accident. There's no error. There's no deficiency. There's no defect. How is it? Because he's God. It is all utter perfection and again we mess that up because we will t taste a dessert ah perfection it's not perfection further not only is his work perfect remember uh when nebuchadnezzar came to himself under the mercies of god in daniel four thirty seven, he said this Praise and extol, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And I like to note that because what had Nebuchadnezzar just done? He had been prideful, which some would say it was a validated pride. He had every reason to be proud. He was the most successful military ruler of his era. Arguably one of the greatest of all time. Everyone he's come to battle, he has defeated. So is that not, you know, does he not have a right to take pride in what he has accomplished? Well, we want to take pride in our work in the sense that we want to try to do it to, with excellence to the best of our ability. But we don't want to take pride in our work, which sounds like doublespeak, means and think, look at me. Look at what I did. Look at what I accomplished. When he did that, what did God do to Nebuchadnezzar? Do you remember? He spent seven years as a beast. No more feasts. No more boasting, no singing, no songs, none of the natural abilities of an... Here he saw himself as superior to all other men, and now for a season, he is inferior to every other man. 
even those who, who would be suffering under some degree of mental deficiency, he was more deficient than them. So he went from thinking he was on top to the bottom, and he was in that state of misery, eating grass and bugs and such for seven years. And then when God gives him his mind back, instead of saying, three would have been more than enough, I would have learned my lesson in three years, you know, come on, or... You know, you could have just given me a bad dream. You know, you could have given me, you know, a numb foot or, or something you could have done. Why seven years as a beast? It's not right. It's not fair. It could have been, should have been easier. But no, what he recognized is I have no rights. I have no claims. I'm just a creature. And God, the creator, has afforded to me all the benefits that I have, all the blessings that I receive, and he owes them not to me. And so here I am now restored, and I recognize all he does is right. Even as Job might say, when God gives, blessed is the Lord. And when God takes away, blessed be the Lord. So he is perfect in all his ways. And, and then it says all his ways, all his works are perfect. All his ways are justice. Now this is, again, you're going to notice that that's an interesting phrase. Because if you and I were attempting to speak English, which we do frequently, we would say all of his ways are just. That would seem like better language than all of his ways are justice. So what's going on there? Well, the, the, and sometimes the reason it's like that is because the, the language that's being communicated there is more complex than is easy to communicate in, in our idea. It's not just the idea of judgments, but the idea of justice here is, is not just a term that is exercised in the judicial realm. We say just, what are we thinking of? Judicial, just and unjust. The idea of justice here uh, blends the lines between that of government and judicial. That of executive and judicial, okay? So, so you've, you've got all, all the way that, not only the way that he judges, but the exercise of his reign and rule, it's all what? It's all right. And the way that it said it, his ways, that is his path, his journey. With, with us, we're, taught, we're warned about straying from the path. All we like sheep have gone astray. Don't go out to the left or to the right. With God, all his ways, all his journey, the path he is always on and never even momentarily strays from is the path of absolute judicial and governmental perfection and uprightness and without error. Now, in case it wasn't stated clear enough in the positive, his work is perfect, all his ways of just, and then it says, a God of faithfulness his truthfulness, his surety. So in all those ways, and everything he says is to be trusted, it is all to be relied on. He will never waver. He will never back down. 
But then it goes on to say things like this. It's having spoken of his firmness and, and fidelity. But it goes on to say, without. Which, if I was to render that more literally, having nothing of, not even a speck of, what? Having nothing of, iniquity but just and upright is he. So it's not, it's not a speck. You know, one, one of the confusing ideas, we live in a world where you've probably heard of the yin and yang. Now, you may have heard that phrase and not realize that it is a reference to a symbol. And you've probably seen that symbol is black and white and it's got a little wave to it. And the bottom part is black, maybe the top part is white. But in the black, there's a little bitsy circle there that's white. And in the white, there's a little bitty circle there that's black. And in, in, in the theory of man's utter nonsense, which is every theory that man concocts is ultimately nonsense. We need to rest on the truth of God. The argument is this, uh, evil and, and righteousness, good and bad coexist. And in all bad, there's a little bit of good. And in all good, there's a little bit of bad. Utter garbage. In God, there is not a little bit. There's not a speck. There's not a flake. There's not, there's not a drop. There's not a molecule. There is nothing. You keep going down and down and down and closer and closer and closer. And you will find no flaw, no error, no mistake. Back up. Back up and see it from afar. No matter how close, no matter how far, no matter what angle or perspective, when you truly see God as he is, nothing, no flaw. And actually, just as a sad warning tell, you and I can't see God as he is in the fullness of his glory and perfection because no man can see God and live. God took on bodily form in Christ and says, you know, you know, he who has seen me has seen the Father. With what regard man is capable of seeing in terms of perfection was manifest in Christ, the exact representation of the Father. But Jesus says, no one has seen God at any time. Not fit. Even now, we do remember even in that smoky uh, vision of Isaiah chapter 6 as Isaiah comes into the temple of God. We remember that and the angels are saying holy, holy, holy around his throne and all of that is there and, and we even know that there he's seeing through this veil of smoke uh, seated on the throne. He can't even see it clearly. But what does he do? Oh, I'm undone. I'm absolutely undone. I'm an unworthy man with unclean lips, you know, an unclean people. I, it, he's just utterly struck even with a, a, a smoke impeded glimpse of the glory of God he's just absolutely undone my mind when I see that also goes you remember when uh, uh, Peter is first out in the boat with Jesus and he's had them pull in all of those fish and then all of the sudden he recognizes that the one who is sitting there with him in that boat is no ordinary man and he says go away from me Go away from me. You know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not even fit to be in your presence. And what, what's uh, to me always astounding about that is 
Jesus could rightly look at him and say, you are absolutely right, dirty little man. You're not fit to be in my presence. But what did Jesus say? Follow me. That is amazing because he would in himself uh, take those of us who are but spots and blemish and flaws and error and iniquity and sin and he will be the lamb of God without spot, without blemish. And he who is without sin will become sin for us that we be made the righteousness of God in him. So that we are presented by God on that last day because of Christ without spot and without blemish. Washed in the blood of the Lamb. And you think that is amazing because I know I'm not worthy of that. I know I'm not deserving. But I get to stand there on that last day not, not wondering, oh, I, I hope I was good enough. I hope I was good enough. Because everybody who's hoping that is going to find out you weren't. Our hope is not that we were good enough. Our hope is in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's no other hope for glory. There's no other hope for reconciliation with God. There's no other hope for salvation. It is all in Christ Jesus. And he is our rock of salvation. Amen. And so we've got this absolute perfection just unfolded, just and upright as he just piles up the terms uh, of flawlessness regarding God, which again goes beyond our full comprehension. And it's because you and I have never experienced anything that's flawless. And if we think we have, it's just our inability to see the details now quickly the scripture then transitions between the perfections of god the uh, the the glory of this solid rock to senseless rebels strong terminology is used here and it says this they have dealt corruptly with him they are no longer his children because they are blemished mm -hmm. so here's the comparison if you're really looking at the terms as i've helped to unfold them no spot, no stain, no blemish, no flaw. Stained, blemished, flawed. No iniquity, iniquity. Perfect, imperfect. And you see this absolute separation. It says, they have dealt corruptly with him. Oh, so strongly it's important to, to get this sense when it says they have dealt corruptly with him or towards him. Now, the language here in the Hebrew is a little bit complicated because it doesn't literally say they there. It's in the singular. And this is not uncommon. So oftentimes when the scripture will be referring to the nation or the people or even mankind, it can refer to mankind. Do you know what the word that's translated mankind is? Adam, because Adam was the head of all mankind, and in Adam, all of mankind fell into sin. By one man's sin, all became sinners, and so there is a sense in which you can refer to mankind, the totality of all mankind, as he, those of Adam, or at times you, would, you could refer to he as Jacob or Israel. 
just as, as a single man. So, but the, the sense of it, and, and that's why our translation of it, they have dealt corruptly with him. And there is a term in there, with him. It's important to note this. All sin is ultimately against God. And we, and we don't get that sometimes. We, we process things in our minds and we say, okay, uh, this is a, a, a small sin. This doesn't hurt anybody. Or what we call a white lie. Lies have no colors, okay? Lies are simply lies. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, not a rainbow, okay? There's no colors involved in it. But the, the, the thing is, people will think, well, I sinned and it was just me in secret. Nobody knows. Nobody's hurt. Nobody's affected. Right or wrong? Wrong. More than that, we also think, well, I sinned against this person, I sinned against that person, and I hurt them, and I offended them, and we think we've just got to make it right with them. And you probably did, and you probably should. But even that sin that affected and indeed hurt another person, it is first and foremost a defiance and disobedience and disregard of God, and then secondarily of man. And in order to help us grasp that, the scriptures sometimes state things with extraordinary hyperbole. One example of that is Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is that psalm that we know David is writing in, in, in confession of his sin. Now we know the, the measure of his particular sins that seem to be referenced in Psalm 51 was he committed adultery so i'm ready to say one he was unfaithful to his wife wife <laughs> he was also unfaith he he uh committed sin against her because he brought her into a situation uh that caused her to commit adultery then she brings, he brings the husband back and he's dissembling, if not outright misleading and divine and lying. And then he has him murdered. So some might say, and I will join that chorus, David sinned against his family. David sinned against Bathsheba. David sinned against Uriah. David sinned against all of these people. And yet Psalm 51 verse 4 says this. Against you, you only have I sinned. And, and you know what? And there's a part of me that wants to grab hold of David and gently crinkle up his shirt and say, No! What do you mean against you only? You also sinned against Uriah. You also sinned against Bathsheba. You also sinned against your family. In a sense, as a king, you sinned against your nation. You sinned against a lot of people. But then I have to be reminded, as somebody grabs hold of my shirt, that um, the scriptures are inspired by God. And so, though indeed I can see some connection, the poetry involved here is an intentional poetry of hyperbole that I would come to understand as significant as I think he has done others wrong by adultery and murder. The degree to which he has defied 
rebelled and disobeyed God is so much more that ultimately it is as if that's the only wrong that matters and the other one doesn't by comparison. Now, it's hard for me to accept that. And it's hard for me to get that because you know who I am? I'm a man. <laughs> and to me, if somebody commits adultery and somebody commits murder, that's pretty serious. Be but what I don't understand is sin against an absolutely holy and perfect God. And so what these scriptures are indicating, it is against him. The same kind of thing, again, we're, we're aware of, um, let's see, when he was... Uh, let's see, when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet, it says this in 2 Samuel um, verse 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 9. Why have you despised the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Why have you done this? And, and what, what I want us to not miss about this is it says this. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? I, I haven't despised the word of the Lord. I love the word of the Lord. Love it. No, you've despised it. No, no, no. Love it. You despised it by what? Living contrary to it. I'm not asking where you think your heart is. I'm not asking how you feel about it and how you think you esteem it. Word of God, great. Word of God, valuable. Word of God, true. Uh, there's too many dear saints who, who would say, what do, you, what do you think is the most important and the most valuable book in the world and in the history of mankind? The Bible. Yeah, it's a good holy answer. Really? Have you read it? Well, parts. Parts. You know? When's the last time you bought a New York Times bestseller and read parts? You don't do that. Yeah, you know, I, decided, I just decided today, I'm just going to read. Eh, I didn't read the whole book. I read chapter 3 and chapter 8. Yeah, it's a pretty good book. Who does that? You don't know anything of the characters. You don't know anything of the themes. You, you, you don't know where, what is the climax. You don't know. You don't follow it. But we still say, yeah, we hold it. No, it is a despising of God. I, reminding you also, Abimelech, when Abraham had given Sarah's his wife was being deceitful because he was afraid he'd get killed. In Genesis chapter 20, God said to Abimelech, said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. And again, when I'm logically thinking, Abimelech touches her, that's Abimelech sinning against her and sinning against Abraham, right? But what does God say? I kept you from sinning against me. And even, even more confusing than that, wait a second. Did God not give him the exercise of his free will to do whatever he wanted? No. God kept him from doing it. God has the absolute, don't, don't diminish the power of God that he can do lots and much. No, he can do all that he's pleasing. Can he stop 
the wicked will of a man and his wanton desire? Can God put that on hold and stop him from even acting upon his own lusts? Yes, he can. Did God have to get Abimelech's permission? Now, I'm thinking about stopping you from touching her. Are you on board? You, we okay here? Did he do that? No, that's not who God is. God is able to restrain at his will. If God permits, who's guilty for the, the wicked deed that's done? That person is wicked and God will bring every wicked deed to judgment. All the wicked among mankind will be thankful on the final day that God was a God that did not grant men the full freedom of their wills. Maybe he will be pleased on that day to not only show them, as Scripture says, there is a list of all deeds done in the body. Maybe he might be pleased. I would think it would be pretty astounding if he was to also show them all the deeds that they would have been inclined to do had he not hindered them. Because I dare say when they understand the extraordinary compounding of their own suffering that would have come upon them if God had allowed them the totality of their wickedness to run amok. Oh. Again, we're all, and I know you've already in your mind run to another familiar passage on this subject, how all sin is ultimately against God. In Genesis chapter 39, there we have uh, Joseph in Potiphar's house, and this is the super familiar one, and again, it's one that we've got to think. He says, he is not greater in this house than I am. I'm, I mean, I'm even equal in terms of practical authority in this house to Potiphar. And then he says this, nor has he kept back anything from me except you. The wife who is trying to force him into illicit union. And he says, uh, because, because he, you are his wife, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And I've always read that and said, well, isn't it after all Potiphar's granted you. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? I mean, he's trusted me with everything. It would be logical for him to say sin against Potiphar, wouldn't it? But the scriptures go a different direction than our logical there. And they say, how can I do this sin against God? So the secret sin ain't no secret. Because there are no secrets from God. The sin that does not hurt anybody, does not destroy anybody, does not offend anybody, does not exist. Every sin is done, that is done is done against God. And you think that you've done it in the darkness, but the darkness is as light before Him. And warning, the scripture says, not only is the darkness as light for Him, but He will Bring everything that was done in the darkness into the light. Everyone will stand before God. And oh, there's so much more in this passage, but our time has already run from us. So what we've seen today, and uh, so we'll, we'll just pick it up next time uh, from there. What we've looked at is the solid rock. And, and it just gives sort of a, a, a cursory 
statement of the complete character of God as perfect in every way, sense, and scope. Then it speaks of, begins to speak of the senseless rebels and how they have sinned against him. And how I'm, what I've just simply sought to urge today is that we understand every sin is ultimately against God. And read this for yourself in, in, the, in the coming weeks, because some of you know I'll be traveling shortly, so I won't be back for a couple weeks. But it mentions the children that, uh, of men here under terms like this. Crooked, twisted, foolish, and senseless. Now, generally speaking, these are not things we aspire for, you know. If I was to say, everybody who is crooked, twisted, foolish, and senseless, line up over here. And then everybody who is wise and thoughtful, line up over here. How many of us would line up over there? A few of you would who are super spiritual. I get it. But the, it would be hard. It would be hard for us. To really own those terms crooked and twisted and foolish and senseless because we all tend to be wise in our own estimation. But is not the case. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of man? Men through wisdom cannot find out God. There's no one who seeks God. There's no one who understands. We've all become worthless. Indeed, we are all by nature crooked, twisted, foolish and senseless now i'm not going to print up t-shirts and make you wear them around town but that is who we were but by the grace of god we are now united to christ who is the wisdom of god and the sanctification of god and so we now by the grace of god have the mind of christ in us so the fools that we once were and are by nature that path has been made straight that wisdom has been given us from above and we are by his grace new, and there is no other way. All right, let me pray. Lord, as always, thanking you for just the joy of digging into your word. Lord, it is so delightful. It is so, its scope, its meaning as we contemplate your perfections and our struggles and our needs and, and the reality of sin. Lord, we thank you for just how relevant your word is uh, to inform our worship, uh, uh, to direct our hearts and our minds, uh, to humble us and to correct us. Lord, we pray that the words that we've considered today would have that effect, that your spirit would mightily stir within us and uh, we would be in awe of you. And Lord, that we would learn from our uh, sinful nature that, w that owned us once and we would, by your grace, walk according to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.